What um, if if somebody asked you, which I'm going to do right now, what what made the sound of GCS unique? What how would you describe the sound of that group? Well, what made the sound unique was the fact that Larry was out in front. The bass was prominent. I don't think before Larry there had ever been a, a situation where the bass was prominent, so prominent. So everything was just driven by the bass. Everything was driven by the rhythm, the bass and the drums. So that that's what made us different was the fact that, um, you know, the bass was prevalent. The bass, Not only was Larry playing the, the heck out of the bass, but he also had a deep uh, bass voice. So that's what set us apart, I believe. Do you think it's fair to say, I mean, he was an innovator. There's no question on the bass. Um, we've still never seen anybody quite like him on bass. Do you think that's fair to say? Yes, yeah. I, I absolutely do. Before or since, there wasn't anybody before him or since him, you know. Anybody that can come and their style of whatever they're doing, music, whatever it may be, painting, writing, whatever it may be. If you can come and what you're doing is so impactful that it changes the whole game, then you you don't have anything but respect for that person. Because after, after Larry came out playing the bass, every bass player that I have ever met that, that knows that I'm in Grand Central Station or not. Because I've been in situations where, you know, I was just at a gig and they didn't know who I was and the bass player was up there, sound check, blah, blah, blah. They always played something by Larry. They felt like, bass players felt like, you know, unless they could play something by Larry, I mean, really play it, then they weren't a bass player. So until they could master that thumping and plucking method, then they, you know, that would worry some of them a lot until they finally got it. Then they were happy. Now they could be called a bass player. Well, there's a whole thing about, you know, when you really feel the funk, you know, you got to make that funk face, you know, that you feel it. And I don't think anybody perpetuated that more than, than Larry when he would hit those notes and those grooves on the bass. I mean, man, it just grabs you. It doesn't, it's embarrassing too, Scott, because I see pictures of myself, because you're right, when you're up there and you're playing that funk and you're in that zone, it shows all over your face. And I've seen pictures of myself <laughs> and it's like, I just couldn't believe my face could even do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not embarrassed because, you know, I was, I was wrapped up in it. So that's the way it was. Yeah. Hey, you know, you can't, you can't help it. You got to go with it. It's not cute. Funk is not cute. Resistance is futile. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so I got these other, um, this was um, the second one, Release Yourself, and then Ain't No About a Doubt. I used to have all these on vinyl, but like I told you, they're signed now, so they're framed. But right. um, And then Mirror, I don't have on CD here. But out of those three um, records, which were all great, um, what are a couple of like highlights to you personally from those three records and why? Hmm. Oh, we're talking a long time ago, but the first album, Grand Central Station was my favorite. And one of the reasons it was special to me is because we worked, uh, uh, Lenny Williams, you know who he is, of course. Tower Power. 
he was uh he's all over that album and just being able to uh work with him because lenny he is he he's a character so just being able to work with him that was real special and then tower of power and then freddie he was on some stuff uh, freddie wrote people uh co-wrote people with larry so just all the people that helped us make that album and and the experience of being in the uh the um studio with all of them that was the most fun because that was the most innocent time that was our first album that was before all the corruption set in all the greed set in so we were just excited about finally putting out our first album so that's my favorite that's my favorite out everything about it what what role did um like spirituality and religion play because you know as a fan buying them i noticed how it seemed like progressively the records were getting more you know biblical quotes on the liner notes and and then on mirror there were a lot of overtly religious kind of songs what was transpiring well what was transpiring was that um larry had um larry and i had broken up so he was uh with another woman tina and she was a Jehovah's Witness. And so Larry got into uh, the Jehovah's Witness um, religion. And that's what happened. That's what happened. Everything, Grand Central Station morphed into uh, a religious funk. So, while, you know? so for, for, for outside as a fan, I mean, it seemed like to me like that kind of set things astray as much as maybe the money squabble and all that. Yeah, it did at, at the point where at the point where it had taken that direction, you know, it, you know, that was the direction Larry wanted to go in, but that was not the direction that the rest of the group wanted to go in. So that was uh, an issue. That was an issue. That was toward the end, too, because we weren't trying to be a gospel funk band. You know what I'm saying? Larry was like deeply saturated. In, into the Jehovah's Witness um, religion. So it was taking over everything, and including music. Hmm. So um, talk to me a little bit, um, Chuckley, you mentioned Lenny and some of these guys. What was the Bay Area um, music and funk scene like? What was it like being part of that? Oh, man. Mm, mm, mm. When I just think about it, it was magic. It was magic because at that time, you had Slider Family Stone, you had Tower of Power, you had uh, Santana, you had Cold Blood. I got to throw Cold Blood in there. I like Cold Blood. So, in Leon's Creations, are you familiar with a group called Leon's Creation? No. Okay. Wait, Leon's it's Creation? Leon's creation. Leon's, cre Leon's creation came out a little bit before Sly and the Family Stone did. And if you listen, you should check it out because you cannot tell the difference. I thought it was Sly. I thought it was some of his earlier stuff, like, you know, like way before they even did out, you know, they came out with some of their first albums, but it was not. It was Leon's creation. Larry was a fan of Leon's. He came from the Bay Area. So there were so many. Eugene Blacknell, go to this club over um, in Oakland called the Sportsman Club. And, you know, there Oakland was full of music. So you had all the local bands, right, that was trying to make it. So it was just the air was just filled with 
funk. It was just filled with funk, you know. And at that time, we didn't really know the impact that funk would have. We, you know, we were just playing music, you know, something that everybody could groove to. It was that, um, it was that fusion of gospel and soul and R&B and it came together and it was funk and everybody was doing it and putting their own twist to it. Santana, he put his own twist on the funk, you know? Um, so everybody came to one another's houses and everybody jammed together two and three nights, you know, people would be up, you know, with the assistance of the drugs, of course. And the part I liked about that was that because I played an instrument, like, I would be able to jam with them. I wouldn't be one of the uh, the girlfriends sitting on the side, you know, trying to stay awake and trying to be cute, you know, while their men were doing their thing. I was like right in there with them. So it, it was wonderful. Uh, it was chosen. It was supposed to happen. It was a phenomenon. And I'm just blessed that I could be a part of it. Wow, that sounds like it would have just been amazing. You know, everybody had a way of dressing. You know, everybody dressed the same. You had denim and turquoise and crystals all over the place and platforms and, you know, and, and drugs. You know, everybody was trying to get the best drugs. And it was like a whole Free couple. love. Huh? <laughs> Free love, yeah. Well, sort of. That was, the hippies were doing that in, in San Francisco. But it was a culture. It was a culture. So it was much more than just the music. The music was part of that culture. But it was just a state of mind, a way of being. And it was like, I'm just, I'm just blessed to be able to be a part of it. I'm so glad I could experience that, that time and be a part of that. Wow. So you mentioned earlier about being out and touring and, you know, Isaac Brothers, Ohio Players, bands like that. When you were part of GCS, did you look at other bands competitively or just as colleagues or, you know, was there sort of like a competitive uh, attitude of the band to out jam the others? Yes, there was, but it, it didn't come, it didn't come from us because we just did what we do. But if we were opening, like for instance, we went on tour with um, the Ohio players. So, it was a tour that lasted, I will say, maybe about three months or so. And we killed them every night. We killed them every single night because we went on before then. So, um, but it wasn't something that we were intentionally doing or set out to do. We were just doing our set. And our set was high energy, you know, high energy. You know, we ended the, the um, set jumping up and down, releasing ourselves. You know, you know, at times, plaster has did actually fall from roofs and stuff from the from ceilings and buildings and stuff did you know that i believe it's like a been like a you know it literally plaster would fall down so so the energy was such that you know it was hard to follow us it really was it was hard to follow us and um so we made friends and we and we made enemies some people thought that some 
musicians thought that we were intentionally doing that, but we weren't. We were just doing our set and it was high energy, like Sly, like Sly, high energy, same stuff. It was just, it was just an extension of what Sly was doing it, but Larry was out in front and the bass was just pumping and pumping and just kicking you all in your back. And it's no way, you know, it's no way. So, but a lot of uh, musicians that we were on tour with and stuff, they would come and they would not miss a set. They would not miss a set. They were uh, like Billy. We went on tour with Billy Preston. He would not miss us. He would never miss us because he appreciated. Sometimes he tried to slide out there with us. So yeah, it went both ways. I must say, most of the time, it was it it was kind of it was hateration going on most of the time. But we weren't even paying attention to that because I'm telling you, by the time we walked off the stage, we were so tired <laughs> until <laughs> until whatever else it was, whatever people were saying, thinking, or whatever, it, it did not even matter. Wow. Was there ever, did it ever happen, or did anyone ever try to set up a show that had both GCS and Sly on the bill? We tried it, Sly didn't show up. Yeah. It was in DC, Sly didn't come. Um, and and also we uh were on we did gigs with uh P Funk too. We did gigs with P Funk and that dynamic was we would go first, you know, because we were up and coming. So we would do our thing and the people would be tired. They would be tired. Um, so what was left of the energy, you know, George would come in and, you know take them all, you know, to space with him. And uh, that, that was always interesting because there was always um, like, I think there was always like this com competition between, although it might be unspoken, but I always felt it between the Slide the Family Stone camp and the Bay Area camp and all that came with that. And then PFARM and all that came with that. So it, it was really interesting because George is actually um, a fan of Sly's, always has been, still is. Oh, they're so friends. That, so yeah. that, it, it would be a little friction when we would play with them. Yeah, well, I think as far as P-Funk goes, they were kind of us against the world. So whoever you might be, I think they wanted to compete with you. Um, was there any bands that you saw during that time aside from your own and excluding Sly, but from like the mid seventies that just blew you away, whether it was, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire, or I don't know who it might've been, but. No. 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 Because, I, you know, I was into that energy that Sly brought. I was into that energy. And like I said, Grand Central Station bought that same kind of energy and I, there was nobody else doing that. And that's what I was into. Well, you know, I brought up at the beginning, you know, that show in the uh, at the House of Blues. And I mean, even that many years later, it was still there as far as I'm concerned. I, I brought my um, fiance at the time to that show and, she, you know, she was a big Prince fan. But she thought it was about the best show she had ever seen. And, you know, you guys dressed all in white. And I mean, it's just it was nonstop, two hours, high energy and just so tight. Everything on the money exactly thank you so much exactly and when we did that we hadn't been together like we didn't even have to rehearse that much because when we got back together it had been like 
mm, some years, I want to say in about 20 years at least, if not longer. And when we got together to rehearse to do that, that reunion tour, it didn't take any time for us to just automatically fall right back into, uh, you know, it was like the time hadn't even passed. That's how I felt in the audience. It was amazing. Yeah, it was like the time had not even passed. So, Chocolate, talk. You, you talked about your solo album. What a thrill it was to hear that. Um, what What did you end up doing? You know, musically in the eighties, and you know, leading up to, um, I guess, that reunion, and then, and then, yeah, leading up to the reunion we're talking about. What What were you doing in the interim? Well, okay. Uh, when I left Grand Central Station, I did pursue a solo career. I did get um, a record deal. And my record was was released. And about two weeks after my record was released, the record company went bankrupt. So that was very disappointing. Um, so then I just continued. I just continued on doing my thing. You know, I sang background, did vocal support with many people. Um, Shaka, B.B. King, many people went on the road, went in the studio. I worked with Wayne Henderson of the Jazz Crusaders for a long time. He was producing every um, artist that he would produce. I was in there with them. I was, I was doing background vocal arrangements. I was co-writing songs with him to be placed on albums like people like Ronnie Laws and others. Uh, we did Reby Jackson. Um, so, and then after a while of doing that, I was getting all the calls, you know, I was, I was the one to come to, you know, and that was a lot of fun. I was, I was, you know, I was doing pretty good. And then after that, I, I was in the studio. I had got called on this session that Dre, uh, Dr. Dre was producing and, um, I was, um, doing some background vocals for an artist he was producing and, um, Kenneth Copeland of Rose Royce came in to the studio to visit with Dre because they had the same manager. So um, when Kenny came in, he heard me singing and he approached me. So that was the beginning of my um, stint with Rose Royce. So I was with them for about five years. That was great. I love that because it was totally different for me because Rolls Royce was the female singer was the one that did you know she she was out front so this gave me a chance to stretch you know what i'm saying it gave me because now everybody's paying attention to me anything i want to get next to you or maybe another song but i had to like up my game step up my game because you know i'm the lead singer so that, that uh, allowed me to take my um you know my game to another level so that was good i really enjoyed that so um yeah, I, I stayed busy the whole time. I was on the road the whole time with a plethora of artists in the studio recording with a plethora of people. And um, so, yeah, I stayed busy. That's good to hear because, I mean, your voice deserves to stay busy. Thank you. Um, so I know you don't like to talk years. Hopefully it's not so bad with this one. But approximately what years were you doing the Rolls Royce thing? uh approximately from like about 91 i was with rose royce when um i did the grand central station reunion tour <laughs> and so that's that that came 
because I did that, that was the end of my little stint with Rolls Royce because we had gigs, right? But I was not about to pass up a Grand Central Station reunion tour. So a lot of gigs, they had they had to call in the substitution for me. So they didn't like that that much. So that was basically the end of that, but it was worth it. Yeah, did you do full sets with them? I mean, of course, people know their hits, Car Wash and Wishing Out Star and all that. But did you do any of the real like funk jams, like if it makes you feel like dancing and that kind of stuff? Yep, we did that. We love did those. That. Love those tracks. Uh, and uh, yeah, we did do that. That was, I think, that was about the funkiest one they did have, and I couldn't wait to do that one. We would come out on that one, so I would would always look forward to that. But as you know, most of their hits were ballads, mm -hmm. except for Car Wash. Yeah. So. Chaka, what inspired you to write a book and then to write the other book and talk to me about like that process? Okay, well, I've always been that person that has journaled. Often. I have all my little diaries from uh, elementary school all the way through high school, always did poetry. So um, just always did write uh, songs you know, songwriter. So the, the, um, the stories that were inside of me, they just, I took so long to, to write these books, but my spirit wouldn't let me rest until I could finally get all these experiences and my stories out. So it was just something that I had always done. And, and I was determined to write a story, uh, a book about Graham Central Station before and after. And as a matter of fact, I have my books right now. Okay, I'm about to. Okay, this is my first book right here. My first endeavor, A Chocolate State of Mind. This is poetry and short stories. Okay, that was the first one. Nice and camera portrait. Deja Vu. This one is about, you know, my career. Graham Central Station highlighted. Deja Vu. And this is my last book. See, uh-oh, is it upside down? No, it's not. That's right. Secret Sacrifice. Um, Secret Sacrifice is a more personal book about, um, about my experience in life with abuse. In every stage of my life, I have been abused in some sort of way. When I was a child, I was uh, molested and abused by my stepfather for many years. And um, when I was with Larry, he was, uh, he liked to fight women. So I was, I was uh, involved with domestic abuse when I was with him. So in this book, Secret Sacrifice, I'm just like sharing because uh, really, like practically all my life, it's been some sort of abuse or another. So I'm just sharing with women because here I am. I'm still standing. You know, I'm, I'm still in my right mind. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. So I'm just sharing with women. And, and it's really right now in these days and times is really important because it still goes on. So I'm just sharing, hope, hoping to motivate and encourage and strengthen women who are going through the same thing and have been since the beginning of time. Wow. I really, I really uh, it's a big personal part of my life that I put in that third book, Secret Sacrifice. And how can people get copies? 
they can go to patricechocolatebanks.com to my website. Everything is there. Great. Everything is right there. You can order everything right there. Sure. And you spoke about my buddy, uh, Stozo. Uh-huh. We are about to launch uh, a whole funk situation because, like, we launched, like you said, uh, Funk Illusion because I am, like, so tired of every genre of music giving accolades except for funk. Funk never seems, it seems to get bypassed for some strange reason. It is really strange because as far as I'm concerned, this is my personal opinion, um, were it not for funk music, there would be no music after it, no hip hop, whatever came after funk would not exist, except for maybe disco, would not exist. So um, I don't understand why funk is not, you know, as prevalent, you know, as rock and roll, all the other kind of music that we've seen movies all about. We see documentaries about all the other different kinds of music, rock and roll, soul, blues. We see all that. But there has never been one um, movie about funk music. Who? How come there's not a, a movie about Sly? and the family stone. What is that about? I do not get it. So it is my mission to do all I can to keep funk music at the forefront and to keep funk music alive. So having said that, Stozo and I, we're launching some new stuff. We're doing some big things, trying to do our part to keep funk you know, in the forefront and to be appreciated and to go down in music history as important as it is. Amen. Amen. <laughs> you know, um, God, I mean, I've struggled with that forever because I, you know, I got. What do you think about that? Why, why do you think that that funk music in particular has somehow been put on the back burner? What is that about? Well, first off, I always wondered it because the first album I ever bought when I was in uh, middle school was Skin Tight. And then from then on, I was, you know, off deep in funk. And all throughout it, I always thought that um, the artists and the genre got short shrift from the record labels, from the public, from mainstream media. Um, I mean, to me, I thought it seemed like a lot of it was racial based, racially based, you know. Um, I think that was definitely part of it. And then I think that disco came along and there was such a massive backlash on disco and they tried to sweep all funk into the disco basket. And since disco was bad, all black music and funk was bad. And so that kept it from getting on Tim TV. That kept um, those acts from like getting record deals and it just kind of poisoned the whole well. And so I think that's part of it also. And then I just think that funk, you know, is so, there's so many aspects to funk and funk can take so many different forms that in some ways, it has maybe more of an indefinable quality than some other genres. You know, I mean, I always say, you know, funk when you feel it, not, you know, not just hear it, you know, when you feel it. Oh, yeah, um, exactly, exactly. But if you don't have that gene, maybe you're blind to it. I don't know, but it has to get the credit it's due. And I'm just so glad that you're out there pushing for it. Well, you know, what's real interesting is that, you know, Funk is trying to make a resurgence 
today, but it's not quite because here's what's happening. Because George has MP Funk and that whole camp, because George never stopped gigging, he never stopped. And you know, and it's all kinds of branches of the, with the P Funk brand on them. So he never stopped. So now you have a whole like generation of people. And I must say a lot of them are young white kids who think that funk music means George Clinton. They, they equate funk with George Clinton, which that's all right. I mean, because at least that keeps funk music, you know, like out there, but it's so much more than George. If funk came from the Bay Area, came from Ohio, it came, you know, there's funk from all over the United States. So, so just to kind of like pin, like, like box it into a P-Funk thing is like so, I can't think of the word that I need to use right now, so I'm just gonna use wrong. It's, it's so wrong because funk is so much more than that. So it's important to me to, for those who, cause there are still a lot of, a lot of young kids out there who want to know what funk is and they just think that is George. But if since they want to know, then I need for them to know that it's more than George Clinton, it's more than P-Funk, it's Sly and the Family Stone, it's Ohio, Zap, it's uh, the Gap Band, you know, it's so much more. So this is what, this is what keeps me going is because I, I you know, it's about funk 101, people have to know. So, and I, I did a, um, I've been hosting a, a online uh, radio show on Blog Talk Radio called Everybody Is a Star, and I've been doing that off and on for about five or six years now. And I've been doing basically what you're doing, and you're doing a wonderful job. I looked this, looked at some of your clips, Fred Wesley, and all that. God, straight Godfather of funk, right there. But um, so I interview those who are the pioneers you know, from everywhere, you know what I'm saying? Just funk comes from everywhere. So that's another thing that I'm doing to uh, try to keep the funk alive too, because it's not big, you know, it's not very many left. It's not very many pioneers left. They're like, they're like, you know, dropping like wow. flies. Yeah, so that's five I'm years, brittle. make sure that I get, you know, can chronicle all of them or as many as I can get to before everybody is gone you know what i'm saying because you know it's heading in that direction so i i just want to say that thank you for we're on this mission together and i appreciate you and that's one of the reasons why i did this interview with you because you are a funkologist and i appreciate you for that i appreciate you right back so and um you know anything that i can do um personally to help the cause anything uh, yeah, I can get out to the listeners and viewers uh, or my website, funkinsift.net. Just say the word. I am there. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, we had a funk fest out here. I'm in the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina area, and they had a funk fest here this past year. And there wasn't a funk act on the bill, you know. See, see that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's another thing. And, you know, especially in the summertime, you know, they have all these festivals that they put together and these events that they put together and they slap the word funk up there and you go to them and nobody that's involved with funk whatsoever is performing. Nobody. 
It's like, and that's another thing that gets on my nerve. I do not like that. Quit using that word because funk is sacred. That's a sacred word right there. And if you if you drawing people in under the guise of funk and they get there and it's jazz and, and smooth this and you know what I'm saying? Everything but funk, then that's ridiculous. So there are still some out there who are still doing authentic funk. I'm one of them. I have a band called Straight Funk. So there are still some of us left out there. So these are the people that need to be out there showing people the authenticity of the real funk. So when you, this, this one that you went to, like name some of the, uh, the bands or the guests. Or well, well, the headliner, I, I didn't go. Um, I, I wouldn't go to that. But the headliner, I think, was Erica Badu. So, cool. you know, so she's okay. She's fine, you know, but Neil's soul is not funk. And, and, and she was about the funkiest one on the whole bill, so. And I'm an Erica Badu fan, and she's a Graham Central Station fan. I went to go see her one time, and she opened up her set with uh, the jam. Yeah, she's cool, but I mean, it's not but a she's funk fest. Not, he's not, she's not a funk artist, though. Yeah, she's not. Right. Yeah. The other thing that, um, <laughs> so that's where Aaron Grievances. The other thing that um, gets me is when um, <laughs> funk, funk bands that have names that we know and love. They come back and they're just putting out mellow stuff and they forgot the funk. Yeah. And see, that's what I think they should do is I think that a lot of artists from back in the day, the ones that are left, as opposed to going in the studio trying to do new music, don't nobody want to hear no new music. Just play the hits. Just play the stuff that we know all the words to. You know what I'm saying? Just play your hits, your funk hits. That's what we want to hear. We do not want to hear this new music you call yourself doing. How are you going to do new music? It, it, you know what I'm saying? Just give us what we what we miss. Maybe. You know what? I think that Bruno Mars, I get flack for this, but I do not care. I think Bruno Mars has tapped into the void that is missing for, uh, because uh, funk music is no longer, you know, prevalent. Because he has tapped into that, because I went to his concert a couple of weeks ago. He has tapped into that party, feel-good music. And 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 I must say, he does accidentally hit a couple of funk grooves in his songs here and there. You know, it makes you party, it makes you feel good, it makes you smile, it, make, it gives you, a couple of times I made that funk face, you know, and didn't even know it. So he is at this time right now, he's the one that seems to, because he studied, I have to give it to him, listening to his songs and stuff. He studied uh, original artists and he studied people who have studied original artists because he brought out stuff from way back and incorporated it in his music. So, you know, I have to say that I, I give it up to Bruno Mars for, for, you know, doing his part to keep the funk alive. Yeah, well, my hope is that, you know, he opens up the ears and minds to some of the fans to go back and check out some of the original stuff, you know. That would be great. That would be great. But, you know, I'm on a mission and I'm going to roll until the wheels fall off, Scott. What about you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like I talked to uh, guys like Greg Boyer and, and, and like that and um, 
bring up about, you know, retiring. And he says, you know, musicians don't retire. They just go until they drop. So tears don't stop either. Absolutely. That's right. That's what I plan on doing. Well, God bless you. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Any other contact info or plugs you want to get in there? Well, I'm on Facebook. You can get, you can find me on Facebook. I have a Twitter and all that, but I haven't quite tapped into my Twitter game and my Instagram game and all that. But I'm going to, you know, do a better job because, like I said, Stozo and I, we have this um, project we're trying to launch. So for right now, you people can find me on Facebook and uh, PatriceJoffaBanks.com. Beautiful. All right. Well, then with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Hang tight. Um, can I just say one last thing? Absolutely. I just want to say, may the fog be with all y'all, okay? All right. And keep it and treasure it. Okay. Absolutely. I think so, that's <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, it's time to wrap up this fantastic edition of Truth and Rhythm. A huge thanks to my special guest, Patrice Chocolate Banks. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, her amazing voice was central to Grand Central Station's catalog of funk and soul classics. Thank you again so much for sharing your time and also your experiences. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Sincere thank you out to the viewers for continuing the interest and support and keeping the funk alive. Be sure to look for upcoming episodes at funkandsoft.net and on YouTube, iTunes, and all the other great leading providers. We want to hear from you, so email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, who you might want to see on the show. Until next time, on behalf of Miss Patrice Chocolate Banks, this is Scott Dr. J. Goldfine saying keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. We've been waiting for so long. Waiting to play for you some of our song. We've been waiting for so long. We want to play for you some of our song because we've been waiting. All right.